0: Namaste. So, this much I think uh, as we grow into a conscious thinking being, we understand that our surface life captures only a small little mood or moment, a little slice of our total existence. It's like Earlier, people used to look at a photograph and decide about the person. Of course, a yogi can look at a photograph and go deep down (coughs) and see into the very heart and soul of a human being. But ordinarily, what we see on the surface is only a small cut-off section. Unfortunately, we have mastered the art of show and deception and what we see on the surface is far from what we are within. So when we start looking within we discover <coughs> sorry, we discover there are unexplored heights, there are unplumbed depths, there are luminous bright regions with a smooth, harmonious flow of the waves and there are dark, stormy regions. And if we get caught in one of them, we can go through a complete roller coaster ride. So, the first thing to understand in yoga is to become conscious of all these domains through which our being does the circus. And in this circus, there are three stages of our self development. One, when we are unconscious, we are like a slave, moved by the forces of nature, for better or for worse, we have no control over what we are or who we are, and we simply just go with the flow. When things are bright and beautiful, we are happy, then after some time there is a slump and a dump, and we are feeling low. This is the most elementary stage when we are completely at the mercy of nature and its waves. In the yogic parlance, this stage is called as anish, anish, meaning thereby not lord. So we are not lord of nature. We are driven by it and at its mercy. And there is the second stage, in which we begin to become a witness, Sakshi. We want to take stock of what is this nature, what is this storm that besieges us, what are these moments in which we are no more ourselves. And we can compare it with taking a journey in a train or a bus or a or a aircraft or or car as it may be. and Traveling there, we are asleep, and the driver is taking us somewhere, wherever, and we don't know where we are going. And the second is when we wake up suddenly in the middle of the journey and we try to figure out who is the driver, what is this road, what is this journey, and where are we going. So, this is the stage when we become a student of ourselves, Sakshi, the witness. We witness and we try to understand. And when we do that, a little bit of control and mastery begins because even though we don't know the direction or the goal, yet this much we understand that there is an imminent danger in front and we ask the driver to haul the car because we see that it is going down an abyss. So this is the second stage when the mind begins to develop in man, a true irrational mind a thinking mind, and this thinking mind has this capacity to look beyond the immediate flow and flux and at least apprehend what is going to come. It may be right, it may be wrong, but it can begin to think a little ahead, plan a little ahead, and thereby tries to at least master its own journey, become a master of its own journey. And the third stage is when it becomes the Anuvanta, Anumanta is somebody who sanctions. So now it decides that, no, 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 I can't be just at the mercy of the driver. I must figure out where I want to go. So one engages in the conversation with the driver that, where are you leading me? Where are you going? And then decides, no, I don't want to go that way. No, this road is looking very crowded and I don't want to go this way. Let me find an alternate route. So he becomes the Anumanta, the sanctioner of The impulses of nature that arise and push us. And finally, when we have gone through this stage, we become Ish. So, Ish is Lord, meaning thereby we become the master of nature and we decide the movement and the forces. So, what are these forces, what are these movements which we don't quite understand? We are cheerful in the morning, we take a dip at night, or vice versa. Without understanding why this happens and then things happen and we curse our fate or we curse ourselves or we curse somebody because we need to blame it on someone or ultimately we curse God because He's the only fellow who will quietly listen to us. <laughs> the buck stops there. But instead of that, we need to understand why the play is the way it is and what can we do here. Can we become a master? And that's where the real journey of self-mastery begins. And with this journey, we discover, the first discovery is that how much ever outwardly we present a very neat picture of ourselves, yet within there is a kind of chaos or we may even say we are in a state of disorderly order. Now, disorderly order is a very interesting word. Sri coins that, meaning thereby we are used to the disorder and we call it order. This is our idea of order. This is the first thing we discover. So, uh, what really is the reason for this disorder? Now, for that, we have to enter into something much vaster because what we call as my nature, your nature, somebody's nature, essentially is only a section cut from a vast universal nature. And in this vast universal nature, There are beautiful, bright spaces and there were very dark, turbulent spaces. For example, if we take a bath in the Bay of Bengal, so we have to be aware that the sea suddenly dips. I mean, the land suddenly dips fast, the, the shore. And one may just lose one's bearing. One has to understand that it's a rough sea. But if one goes to the shores of the Pacific or even the Arabian Sea for that matter, the waves are much quieter. So similarly, within us, there are regions, or let's put it like that, that if cre- take it the Ashwatri tree, that the creation begins from above downwards. The higher we rise up in the scale, the more harmonious are the rhythms. And the lower we come down, it becomes more and more turbulent, more and more chaotic, more and more troubled and disturbed. There is a very interesting prayer of the mother of September 1st, 1914 where she speaks of it. She invokes the Divine Mother and then she is asked to turn towards those who have need of her help. She is given this command and then she sees who needs the help and why do they need the help and then all the grades of consciousness appeared. Now I am just quoting a little bit. All the successive worlds somewhere splendid and luminous well-ordered and clear. Their knowledge was resplendent. Expression was harmonious and vast. Will was potent and invincible. Then the worlds darkened in a multiplicity, more and more chaotic. The energy became violent and the material world obscure and sorrowful. And when in our infinite love we perceived in its entirety the hideous suffering of the world of misery and ignorance, when we saw our children locked in a somber struggle, flung upon each other by energies that had deviated from their true aim, we willed ardently that the light of divine love should be made manifest, a transfiguring force at the center of these distracted elements. So here it's very clear that in the configuration of the worlds, the closer we are to the divine origin, the more the worlds, their beings, their energies, their rhythms are harmonious and beautiful. And the lower down we come into the grade, it becomes more and more chaotic, more and more disturbed, more and more turbulent. Now, there is a very interesting aside to this. The, I mean, in, in India, ancient India, Bharat, we discovered many of these truths and we developed certain practical ways to address the problem. Mother is giving us the final solution and that final solution is the divine love which is at the core of everything. But then, uh, what was the solution? The solution was to ascend... From that state of utter slavery and from these being caught in these lower vital worlds where the energies are very turbulent and rise higher and higher up the ladder. How to do it? And here also we see something very interesting. They devised a means, a very interesting means, which is available to all of us, but we seldom use it, and that is the power of human speech. It may sound very strange. What is the power of human speech? Now, speech is the most expressive symbol which will, in one single test, just as if a person can smile genuinely, that means we can say that in a way all is well. Similarly, speech is a very simple test to see where one stands. So, when we look at human speech, I am not talking of the deliberately put on show of uh, either eloqu- eloquence or uh, you know we have learnt how to uh, be well behaved and good mannered, but otherwise the rhythm of the speech, the sound, uh, the way the speech effects flows, we can see that it it is coming from when it comes from a higher regions there is in it a spontaneous rhythm, an inspiration, and at its highest it becomes the mantra. That is how the mantras help because. They are rhythmic vibrations and these rhythmic vibrations can eventually impose themselves on the lower vibrations which are, which have derailed and they can entrain them or retrain them. you know just as we have the NLP, this is a retraining program where these vibrations which have become chaotic can once again be brought back to the rhythm. So this is one of the things that we learn from this. The second thing that we learn is that the higher worlds are vast. That is what we saw here. And the lower worlds are very, very, very chaotic. And they are very narrow. And it is true that when the same energy, the same force, you know, when we look at a tornado, the same energy, the same force, when it enters into something which is narrow, it it's a great degree of turbulence. And when the same energy enters into its vaster mode, it begins to lose its turbulence and chaos and automatically has a tendency to flow in a smooth way. So essentially if we take the image of a funnel, we may say that there are three or four domains from which we act and which have a bearing upon our life, upon our moods, upon our thoughts, upon everything that we do and its value. The, the first, if we may take the inverse view, which we seldom access, is the superconscient. And all is there harmonious and beautiful and uh, in, in complete rhythm. And we have just spoken about it. And if human aspiration, through aspiration, we can climb to these regions or tap these layers, sometimes just through a prayer, then their forces, their powers, their energies can impact us and begin to change us. So this one source of action and this action carries within itself a calm certitude. so So when we talk about the sphinx of mood, now even when there is a high in that state, it is a divine high. Let me take an example. And that example is when Shiva destroys... We may say, oh my God, it is destruction, but this destruction has a rhythm to it. It's Tandav. It's not just a chaotic destruction that an Asura engages in. So the same energy, the energy of destruction and outwardly we may say the energy of violence when Kali destroys, when Durga destroys, the same energy because it's supported by something vast, a vast, large-scale movement which is in contact with its origin then the same energy changes its nature and becomes even an instrument and a vehicle of the divine. We have Shobindho's uh, beautiful uh, poem, Baji Prabhu, which is about war. This is important because people have this tendency to regard an action by itself as good or bad. But actually, the good or bad of an action, its true value is derived from its source, its origin, the idea that is driving it, and the force that it manif- that is manifesting through it and pushing it. So this is where action and event draw their value from. So this is the first source, which is the superconscient, and it also can lead to a high, but it is a divinely high movement. It can also lead to a low paradoxically, but it is a divinely low which carries in it a sweetness and a compassion. Let me take the example of this divinely low movement. In the same story of Shiva, why I am saying this is because normally we just immediately think that all highs and lows belong, belong to the same domain. So, uh, in the same story of Shiva, there is a story when Sati dies and when Sati has sacrificed herself. This is not a death, she has sacrificed herself. And we see that uh, he is, Shiva moves through the quarters in a state of sorrow. Now, what is this sorrow of Shiva? He in fact withdraws from the entire world and engages into a trance from which he has to be brought out with great difficulty. We know the story of Parvati, the same power is born again and does the tapasya, and then you know the rest is history. Uh, but basically, now Shiva's high when he engages in a dance, when Parvati is by his side and he creates. In the same dance, he destroys the past and creates the new. It's called as lasya, it's not Tandav. But the same Shiva engages in a state where there is utter destruction. And Shiva is in that mood which can be called as a divinely sorrowful mood in which there is a touch of compassion for a world that has rejected the divine Shakti. This is what we see in that state, that there is a high of the spiritual worlds. There is a high even in the mental world and a low even in the mental world. What is the high in the mental world? When our thoughts are racing in a, uh, they are not racing in that sense but stress of inspiration is flowing through us and it's flowing like massive, uh, like a ganges, like, like Ganga or like the sea, ocean pouring into the human vessel. And there is a low in the regions of the mind itself where we see that our thoughts become very low, ugly, narrow, they are crawling upon earth, even though mind is stationed high and yet, as Sri Ramakrishna said, it is like the vulture which is flying high, is strong also, has a good beak, good claws, but its attention is diverted towards the piece of meat on earth. So these are the two highs and lows, are which are spiritual highs and lows and the mental highs and lows. These lows are relatively easy to overcome because within the mind there is, is its own corrective. If we have trained our mind, if it is no more at the mercy of vital, then the mind has a capacity to disengage itself from its own movement. It's not normal because, uh, well... Uh, we identify it so much with the mind, but any developed mind can look at itself. That's how when people ask, uh, what were you thinking? They say that I was thinking this, I was thinking that. How do they know they are thinking? Because something in them can become a witness to their own thoughts. So any mind which is developed, develops the discerning intelligence and the capacity to look at itself in a sakshi bhav And that is why one of the first things that is important and at least the first thing that at home and through education must be developed in a child is the capacity to discern. We give freedom, which is good, but we don't empower children how to choose. So they have the freedom, but they are not empowered. They are not equipped with the knowledge. They don't have the discerning intelligence and therefore they often, very often, don't know what are the choices to be made and suffer as a result of it. So, when the mind develops a discerning intelligence, it's a great victory, it's a great step forward. In fact, the very fact of development of mental intelligence uh, allows us to an extent to escape the lesser law, the law of the vital, which is uh, where the zone of turbulence, the highs and lows lies, a dangerous highs and lows. So below the mind, we enter into this zone of vital. Vital, as we know, is a zone of energy. It is prana, which can expand. It can contract, collapse. And in this domain lies the major problem of the highs and lows. And the highs of the mind can lead to all kinds of imaginative fantasies and delusions because what does the vital do? Vital Wants to realize sometimes impossible dreams, but when it finds the effort too much, or it does not know what is the effort to be made for it, it enters either into the mode of hyper ambition or it constructs a world of its own dreams where it believes, well, it is already realized, but it's far from that. And often we see instances, at least as a psychiatrist, I also see patients who pick up a great profound truth and uh, it leads to a great downfall because the world often suffers because of misapplication of something which is true. Take for example, a very profound truth which is called as Aham Brahmasmi. I am God. Put it in a, I am Brahman, but well, we can put it as I am God. Now when the vital catches it, when the mind catches it, it tries to understand what it means, I am God, etc., etc. When the spirit catches it, the spiritual being, it understands what it means that I am God. It means that in the essence, the origin is there in everything. So it could be equally said of everything, that everything in its deepest essence is God. So when the spiritual understanding comes, there is no problem. But when the mind catches it, it spins, tries, twists, Catches it wrongly, rightly, ultimately it realizes that, well, I have to realize this truth. It is a truth of the mind, it must become a living truth of the spirit. But when the vital catches it, especially the over eager vital, which is full of ego and desire, it feels if I am God, that means it's so wonderful, I can fulfill all my wishes. And then you have books which, uh, uh, you know, misuse this profound truth. (laughs) The secret, (laughs) whatever you desire or wish with great sincerity or intensity will be fulfilled. The whole cosmos will fulfill it. They are misusing a very profound truth. So similarly, the vital also misuses. So what the vital does? Vital says, yes, wonderful, I am God and therefore nothing is impossible to me. And well, it goes as far as it goes On the strength or the weakness of the ego, one achieves until nemesis follows subris, which is inevitable because vital has a limit and a ceiling. It cannot uh, expand in an unlimited way. We see this happening to many kinds of beings of the vital world who believed and tried it And met with an adverse fate. Sometimes one doesn't meet with an adverse fate. Sometimes the balance of nature is kept in such a way that one enters a high and remains there and is an achiever. Though inwardly one would say that one has lost a lot. That same tremendous energy could have been used for really climbing very high. But well, there are some people who are achievers like that, who are driven by a tremendous vital, by a high. In in medical parlance, we draw distinctions between the one having mania and the other having hypomania. So, manics are those who break down under the stress of a tremendous vital intensity which they cannot handle and the hypomanics are those in whom the intensity is just enough to achieve so they are achievers very good achievers uh, because they are go getters they are they are those who can push themselves they are aggressive and many often we will see in these self help method that you know one should be like that one should be a go getter well fine so that's ordinarily in ordinary life a hypomanic uh, state or a little bit of excess vital energy helps, but at the same time, as we know, that uh, this energy could have been used for something much greater, much more purposeful. But that's the thing apart. So, vital highs can be of two kinds one where we, uh, you know, topple over and uh, we trip over, and the other where the tripping is somehow kept in a reasonable limit. This may happen either because the reason is developed and there is a good harmonious balance. Uh, Not harmonious, but at least at some point, the vital also listens to the reason and therefore this energy is contained within limits. But equally, all those who hope violently, Sri says, despair swiftly. So there is a third possibility and in that possibility when the vital intensity tries to climb up to catch the moon or to touch the moon or to uh, catch the sun and it obviously doesn't know the way and therefore when it collapses because it's frustrated, it sinks down below and revolts. So this is how these turbulent worlds were born. These turbulent world came into existence Because of certain energies, the mother speaks of that, we just read that prayer, where certain energies deviate from their true purpose. This is what we were just talking about. And these energies have revolted. They have revolted from their origin, cut off themselves from their origin. So in human beings we see this happening when we, as I said, Oh, I am God. One denies, many times one denies anything higher, anything divine. Because uh, for the asura, it means that one has to surrender, one has to be humble. And humility is the last thing that uh, beings so of the vital like. So they go with their own uh, way, in their own way, with their own strength. And when the desire is not fulfilled, there is frustration and this collapse and there is a low. So this hyper energy, energetic um, vital enthusiasm, mother speaks about it as, do not trust this power of the vital. Because it is like, yes, I will do it, I can do it. They Even in yoga we see this. Uh, people take to yoga because they have heard about super mind, they have heard about the transformation, they have heard about marvellous things, beautiful things. Sometimes they have watched videos and they, oh, this is so good. They don't know the path through which people have gone. They have tried to turn through the vital and the vital is not in any kind of control and when they try to do it, it is like jumping and bringing a slice of the moon as cheese and enjoying it. It doesn't happen like that. Sadhana requires a great degree of steadiness. There is a very beautiful word in the Upanishad, Kat Upanishad. Tam Stesham Shantim Shashwati Netresham So the first thing in spiritual life which we are taught is to practice peace, calm, quietude and as its result and of course the result of many other aspects, equanimity. So without peace and equanimity, when the vital tries to catch, sometimes people try to do very aggressive kind of sadhana. They will day and night start calling God. They don't realize that if the being is not ready, it is not the divine who will come down. But very often they end up calling some vital energy and have a breakdown. This is unfortunately a common thing which happens. That's why in yoga the first step is purification. And this purification takes at least 12 years. It's not a hurried thing. It's not like today I start the yoga or I join the ashram and tomorrow or maybe the day after or maybe in a year I'll start shining and become a yogi. So people who approach the yoga without patience, perseverance, surrender, humility, uh, vigilance, these are the things that the mother repeatedly advises who are too restless, who do not cultivate peace, they run a great risk of these highs and lows. And therefore, the first things first is to cultivate peace, to cultivate quietude. Now, that's a subject in its own right. And one of the simplest ways, of course, through surrender to the divine, to accept things as they come, in surrender to the divine will, this resignation to the divine, this surrender to the divine This ability to accept things which are not according to what I wish or what I desire is a great practice. And one of the things that helps tremendously in this process is what is described in the Gita as Nishkam Karma. So Nishkam Karma is a beautiful practice which helps us to get rid of the desire. Lower down this vital is desire. So in this vital world we will see the higher vital world which are imaginations leaping toward the sky to catch the moon or taste the moon. And we have the emotional being which is a little lower down. This emotional being sometimes can get tremendous intensity either because it's pushed by the passions below Or else, it is pushed by the uh, psychic being behind. Now, when it is pushed by the psychic being behind, then this intensity in the vital can actually lead to a spiritual high, spiritual ecstasy, uh, which people experience sometime. But uh, it's only when it is brought under the governance of the psychic. But when the psychic is not active and simply there is a kind of very emotional bhakti, an emotional fervor, even a sentimental bhakti full of egoism, vira, vairagya of a certain kind, it is obviously dangerous. But when this um, vital goes lower down the emotion, we see passions. And these passions so often color our emotions. They make us believe that, well, this is true love, but it's nothing else but passions rising to the surface. They blind us and thereby they make us trip because when one is driven by these passions, passions again uh, create this illusion that, well, this is already mine. And That's the stage when people in adolescence say things like I am forever yours and you are forever mine <laughs> not realizing that nothing really belongs to anyone that way and then they when they lose after some time they are very disheartened and go through that phase but if it was just a question of passion it's still okay passions are fine they can be tamed they can be trained the mother just talks of them as wild horse and when they are tamed they can really become something very beautiful there is a nice flower which mother has uh, named as human passions turned toward the divine. Passionate love for the divine. So passions can be trained and tamed. That's not an issue. But still lower down and that's where we have the real danger. These energies become very chaotic and turbulent and they enter these subconscious realms. Now, in the subconscious realm, there is a repository of all the revolted energies, all the frustrated energies, all that is infrarational. It is the home of the inconscient, of blind energies, obscure energies. And time to time, they rush up to the surface. And it's described in Savitri uh, man holds in his house of life not the gods alone, the demon and the beast and the jinn grow well in his antedent. And uh, in the subconscious pit. So this subconscious is also the one which pushes us towards a high. And when the subconscious pushes it towards the high, then uh, it's terrible because it can lead to much of all this. We When we read about the certain phases in history, when there were uh, kings and emperors who went around massacring, wherever it goes, there is plunder and ruin and massacre. And it's driven by subconscious forces, there is a full-blown Rakshasa. It's not just the Asura. Asura is still the aggressive vital, the ambitious vital. But in the Asura, there is some beginning of a mental intelligence, uh, some beginning of thought and uh, at least a ability to analyze things, ability to reason out. But the Rakshasa is somebody who is on a rampant destruction. And because of that, even when one achieves, one is very unhappy inside. Because it is the nature of the Rakshasa to revolt. So when we see that, there is a kind of high in which there is a perpetual low. It's a high, but strangely there is extreme degree of restlessness. Extreme degree of turbulence. It's a stormy depth covered by an exterior which looks like somebody is an achiever and a go-getter and very happy even a smiling face but actually one is driven by very dark and turbulent energies and uh, yes creation does not stop here one goes below and there is of course the utter inconscient but what does the inconscient do it pulls all these energies there is a complete shutdown of the system and there is a complete darkness, a state of Tamas. So, this is the inevitable end of all this Rakshasik, um, Pishachik kind of an Asuric energy is that in the end, if they don't have a course correction, the Asura can undergo a course correction. But for the Rakshasa, it's very difficult to have a course correction. He has to first develop his mental intelligence. So, when they cannot undergo a course correction, they collapse into the... Subconscious from which they have emerged and back into the inconscient. So then there is a state of utter tamas, a low like never else. So it is a stone-like low, complete what we describe in our uh, medical terminology as a state of catatonic stupor. That degree, it is not just a extreme melancholic depression when one is so depressed that one cannot even Uh, undertake an extreme act. So this is the whole range and as I have said, what is the remedy? The remedy is, as always, we go back to the same thing, three, four remedies I'll just touch upon. One should try to discern the motive and the origin of the impulse to act. If there is restlessness, if there is egoism, if there is Uh, you know, sense of aggrandizement, for example, I am God's chosen instrument, born to do great things in the world, then one should know that this is in all likelihood coming from the vital. All restlessness, all urge to hastily, impatiently untie the cosmic knot. We see this in certain kinds of activism, which one can clearly see is a movement of the Asura and Rakshasa impatient who want to uh, correct the world uh, with their own idea and ideology and hastily so much so that they want to have a revolution uh, with the barrel of a gun. So these are extreme Asuric and Rakshasic ideologies and they collapse because they cannot be sustained by the divine impulsion which is behind. So, one has to discern where it is coming from. I have seen people taking to spiritual life and then becoming an activist, and they justify it by using a new word, which I have heard spiritual activism, where well, we can name anything. <laughs> but spiritual activism can only be when the will is surrendered to the divine will. <laughs> and I have seen people deviate to what extent? Because ultimately it is the restless vital. Oh, why aren't things changing? Why there is no transformation? Everything is going bad. I'll do it with my mind. And then it goes and goes and goes. And there is, I have seen lives end very sadly. So one should be very careful. Peace, calm, equanimity, quietude. To learn to discern sincerity is the biggest safeguard. To see what I am really wanting. What is hidden behind my motive. The motive that is given is I am doing God's work. See, doing God's work, people have blown up their bodies, blown up innocent children. And if you ask them, they will say the name of God in the name of God. We are doing God's work. (laughs) So how much of blinding can take place by these dark, turbulent, rakshasic energies? Same thing, we see, I mean, I I, I can say freely, both Islamic terror as well as uh, communist terror, Terror. they have the same origin and that's why you will see that there is a tendency for these two to come together paradoxically one is fanatically believes in God the other fanatically does not believe in God both are fanatics in their own right but this kind of rigid fanaticism very narrow ideology whether religious or mental comes from dark domains and it creates restlessness. People who follow those ideologies are extremely restless, driven by impatience and the mother disguise. Impatient subjects revolted all the time. They revolt against anything and everything. They fight amongst themselves. So one has to discern. So first thing is to awaken the discerning intelligence. How does the discerning intelligence develop? Of course, one has to It's best if it is done from childhood. But the least one can do is to see sincerely what is the origin of one's action. The second, of course, this is also within our reach through prayer, through whatever means quietude, a kind of a uh, quietening meditation to invoke the uh, rhythms of the higher worlds through the mantra, through calling peace and all this tends to set these energies a little bit in order. But this won't work beyond a point. Because after all, the energies have only been temporarily sorted out. They have not been changed. So there will be a seesaw. You do the mantra, things are better. Then again you go back in life because ultimately we are still tied to the springs of the lower worlds. So the first real remedy starts by finding the psychic being. because Then we can truly distinguish. Psychic being carries the true discernment. We can distinguish the source of our action. We can see what is leading us towards us individually and the collectivity towards uh, the divine and what is coming in the way. And even when we have to wrestle, it is done in a state of calm, without hatred, without anger, without inner violence, even when a war has to be fought. That's why many people cannot describe, uh, understand the Gita because they say, well, Look at Arjuna and Shri Krishna. They are fighting a war. It's extreme violence, isn't it? So, well, Gita is the complementary to that. Gita describes the inner state with which Arjuna has to follow the command of the divine. If the inner state is not there, which is described in the Gita, Maitri, Karuna, Ivascha, the inner state is not of equanimity, if the inner state is not that of a jñāni, if the inner state is not that of peace that comes by taking our entire refuge in the eternal, if such is not the inner state, then it is futile to say that, you know, I am acting in the name of God and fighting in the name of God. But if that inner state is there and the command is there, then yes, of course, one can engage in any activity including the most violent kind of activity and yet that activity will do good in the world. And that is the difference between uh, Shiva when he destroys with full compassion and knowledge in a rhythm of a dance and... Along with the destruction he new creates and the violent Asuric destruction which Asuras engage in. And yet Shiva understands that they are the shadow of the same divine movement. And that's why we see that the Asuras are dear to Shiva because he understands. And they can truly undergo a change by contact with Shiva. They are worshippers of power. And when they see that power, divine power, they turn towards it. And if they can truly surrender, they can undergo the change. There so many st- interesting stories. One of them of Ambarish in our scriptures and how an asura can undergo a transformation. So, ultimate remedy is, of course, transforming these energies. Because if they are not transformed, the only option will be to discover the higher realms, withdraw into them. Live there, stationing oneself there like the yogi sitting on the whirlpool. Not enter and engage into activities which require passion and emotion and to stay above and when, well, the moment arrives to withdraw into the arms of God or into Brahman or into a safe haven above. So this this is the inner side of the story, the highs and the low. Even the body has its high and low. We see all this. So we have the vital high and low. And the body also has its high and low. And that depends upon the constitution of the body, the forces that are acting upon it, even on nutrition. So that is important. If the body is in a state of fatigue, it experiences a low. And in this low, there is an invasion of the dark forces. So every, the triple world, mind, life and body, they are prone to highs and lows. And while the mental highs can graduate further into the spiritual high. It's possible. Um, And the vital high is also by surrendering its intensity, uh, its capacity at the feet of the divine, the vital also can become a powerful and luminous instrument of the divine. So, and the physical of course, when placed at the service of the divine, can of course undergo a transmutation. And instead of highs and lows, it can become a luminous vessel and vehicle and a channel, an instrument for the divine action upon world. So this is the, uh, what what can we say, a little talk, sharing my insights. I like that word and if somebody has a question, you are most welcome. Uh, Dr. Locke, you were talking about training, uh, training the vital passions. Yes. How can they be turned into a… how can they, these vital passions be turned into yes. A direction? Yes. Yes. So, in, uh, in ancient Bharat, okay, <laughs> this was inculcated from childhood. So… And that's why the first stage when a child was growing up was called as Brahmacharya Ashram. Brahmacharya is not what we understand, it's, just, it's not just about sexual control. It's about controlling and regulating our entire life according to Dharma. And I know this having grown up in a, um, you know, Bhartiya household, um, in a certain family of values. So we were taught about Dharma and While we did everything, for instance, it was from childhood, we grew up and my parents also, uh, we saw them and grew up with this idea that abuse is something very um, harmful to oneself. Now I understand when mother says that, you know, using abusive speech is like committing spiritual suicide. (laughs) I feel so thankful that I grew up in an environment. But today when I see children using four-letter words and God knows what words, five-letter words. And parents, as if, you know, it's 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 slang, it's humor, it's good, it's great, it's cool. So, I don't know. So, it's because uh, from childhood we have not allowed these energies to be trained. So, this training should ideally begin in childhood. But, It doesn't matter if one has gone to the next level, Uh, like remedy as primary prevention is childhood. But then the next level is secondary prevention. When the disease has begun to set in, that's where there are three, four things to be done. One is isolating oneself from these corrupting influences. So there are always friends and people who will uh, always use our passions to give it a wrong direction. For instance, I remember when I had joined FMC, just about 16 and a half, 17, 18, you don't know much about life. And though you have grown up up with very good values and yet what happens suddenly during adolescence and you are uh, far from home and your friends try to uh, give you all kinds of suggestions and sometimes under peer pressure, people succumb. Now, somehow something within me stopped, but I know children who are very nice, who we joined together, but their life took a very different turn because, you know, they were caught into that kind of friendship. So it's so important to choose our friends. We don't understand this because we live in an age where all is equal, all is same, everything is same. Uh, this kind of a uh, blind sameness, uh, or rather uniformity being confused with unity. So, we should be very careful about the friends we choose. So, passions are not to be uh, suppressed, but we should be careful that they may be misused by people. I mean, so many uh, movements I have seen, activistic movement. um, I mean, we know even now all politicians use how they pick up passions because passions can be easily aroused and turn them towards wrong use. So, at least we should learn not to do that. So, then these passions have to be turned towards something higher. So, one is, of course, they need to be a little bit refined if they are very crude. And art, music, painting, uh, culture, language, these are some of the simple ways to refine the passions. We already had, I think, a whole session on that. So they should be refined. They can be refined. It's like training a wild horse. So wild horse can be trained. It has to learn slowly what it means to move rhythmically so that the master doesn't fall. All this is a part of refining the vital through art, music, poetry, painting, uh, language, all this is part of. That's why language is so important, uh, the way we communicate with each other. And then it can be Finally, uh, turn towards something higher and one of the best ways to uh, train these passions is by turning them towards a high ideal, either a high idea or a high ideal. So, one is seized by a passion, let us say, uh, to, you know, people have passion for books and passion for, you know, gaining knowledge is something very beautiful because then these passions begin to turn towards something still higher. But not all our passions can turn easily towards knowledge. There are passions, uh, passion has very lower level, which are closely connected with the bodily energies. They don't readily turn towards knowledge. So these passions can be beautifully directed through sports. So it's important to have some kind of either a game, some exercise, some brisk walking, whatever it be, uh, so that these passions, energies of passion, can be directed rightly. And that's why we see in the ashram many of the youngsters who come with so much of freedom that the mother gave, uh, the the playground, the physical education, uh, if at all, that was the only thing compulsory because all the rest uh, can be done. Uh, but uh, this is something which is a very good way to direct these energies. Poetry is another very good way to direct these energies. Uh, writing, creative activity, writing journals, very good way to direct. And of course, the ultimate way is to link the, these energies to the psychic so that our seeking In bhakti, in devotion, there is a passion. And in surrender, there is a passion. And finally, to turn this passion into becoming an instrument and a channel of God. So the ultimate cure for this is by becoming a servant of God, slave of the divine in the true sense of the word. And uh, And in Savitri, we have those lines where it's described that how when the uh, kundalini awakens, and all the levels is described. And when it comes to ambition and proud lusts, so he speaks of them that they turned into a service of God. So when we serve the divine, then these passions get uh, tamed and trained. It's a age-old method in yoga, and it's so beautiful and powerful. That's why people who only will see who pursue Gyan Yoga, they sit on these passions. To an extent, they exercise control. But since they have not been tamed and trained, uh, these people who withdraw from the world and practice Gyan yoga can suddenly have in, uh, they lose control and they can curse and their speech can be very aggressive and violent. Whereas those who live in the world and they direct these energies in the right way, uh, even a family life is one of the way to train these energies, to teach them uh, some humility, to teach them that there is something greater than my little ego self And these are practical ways to really learn to train them. One important lesson is communes. Communes are a very good way to tame these energies. Because otherwise when one is living alone, one is like, okay, life is only for myself, me and myself. But when one lives in a commune, one uh, discovers that, you know, we are at the service of each other. This is the minimum. And then finally, as I said, turn toward the divine to serve the divine is the best way to finally change these passions. Passions can be changed because they have within them still that core of divine love. That's why passionate love, passionate attractions, though it's deviated, but it has within its core. But tamas is difficult to change. And the moment we fall below passion, complete revolt, is very difficult to change. That only the divine love can change. If one has opened or the divine love has picked up, that is, a, uh, I mean, if a human has developed a rakshasa-like greed and glutton, <laughs> God alone can save him. Yeah. Thank you, doctor. Thank you so much. Thank you. Talk. Yeah. Thank you.